Again, thank you for being here. Thank you for everybody who made it late, even if you came in the door late. We're still glad you're here if you didn't get welcomed last time. Next week is Holy Week. You know, we've got all the days of Holy Week. We've got Good Friday and, of course, Easter coming up. But tonight, um, as a church, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, and I kind of want to lay a foundation this evening for the message and our time together for Easter next week. And I'll be honest, it's been a tough sermon for me to put together and just a lot of wrestling and battle with it. So if you would, I'm just going to pray before we dig into tonight. Father God, again, thank you for this time together and the opportunity to praise you and to worship you. And so God, tonight, I just ask that the words that are spoken be your words and your truth that I say what needs to be said, and I leave behind what needs to be left behind. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week, um, the girls have been off school because of a COVID restriction thing. There was a breakout after school, and so for a couple weeks now, my older girls have been out of school, and so it's been like an extended three-week spring break, basically, for them. And Presley had the idea last week of maybe taking some friends out on the boat. I thought it meant two or three friends. It ended up being eight Teenage 14 and 15 year old girls, yikes, yeah, they're loud. I thought I had a quiet daughter too, and it was just, it was loud. They're crazy, and they're having fun, and it's because, man, they're just really comfortable with each other. They're good friends. Um, Two of them, I think three of them are actually here at the church, and so they've been friends forever, and it's deep relationships, and they're just, they're just being friends, and they're just enjoying life and being with each other. But as they were there and together, I thought, well, what if one of these girls knew that her time was limited? Maybe she's moving away to a new city at the end of the year, and how it would still be a joyful time together, but there would be that underlying, like, oh, man, but this is going to come to an end soon. Or take it a step further. What if there was a child on that trip that had a terminal condition and knew that, man, I might not get together with these kids ever again? How would that have changed the day for those girls or for that girl who was going through those emotions. It would still be a day of joy and fun and celebration, and they would still be loud, but there would have been this underlying sorrow. What if you came in here tonight and you knew you only had a few days to live? You got the news from your doctor right before you came. It it would be a different kind of church service tonight for you, wouldn't it? Things that seemed important yesterday wouldn't have a whole lot of importance today. You'd be very selective about what you did and the people you spent time with. You'd probably want to begin sharing some really important final details and instructions to the people you love. And there would be a purpose and an urgency to everything you do, not a wasted moment. And a side note, we ought to live like that all the time, right? Like it's our last day, but we don't. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully human. As God, he knows, because he's omniscient, that What he's come to do, the time has come, that he was born to die for the sins of the world. But as a human, man, he has many of the same desires that we have. And so he wants to spend time with those closest to him. He wants to share important details that can help his friends understand what's about to take place. And so for Jesus, in this moment that we're going to look at tonight, in this final week of his life, it is a time of joy Because he's with his friends, he's with those he loves, and it's loud and it's fun, but it's also a time of underlying tremendous sorrow and pain. 
And so let me give you a little context of where we're going to pick up in the story tonight. Um, Holy Week, if you don't know kind of the events that fall out, it really begins Saturday. So tonight, let's say, it begins. And uh, it's with uh, Jesus with Mary out in Bethany, and she anoints him with oil. And then we come to Sunday. And if you go to a traditional church tomorrow, they're probably preaching their Palm Sunday message. You know, Jesus riding in on the donkey, the triumphant entry. And then we get into Monday, and Jesus cleanses the temple, if you remember that scene. And he flips over the tables, and it's not just some excuse for Christians to be jerks on Facebook, but it was to draw attention to himself and hasten the inevitable. By Tuesday, he's still teaching, and it's just like a fire hose, man. He's just teaching and teaching and teaching. There's urgency. And by Wednesday, the leaders are now plotting. Judas agrees to betray him. And where we're going to be tonight is Thursday. And there's the preparation for the Passover meal. If you read it in Luke 22, it's like this cloak and dagger operation where he tells them to go talk to this person, go see that person, and they eventually end up in the upper room. And they're baking the bread, and they're uncorking the wine, and they're preparing this Passover meal. That's where we're going to pick up tonight, Luke chapter 22, verse 14. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. All around Jerusalem that night, I mean, it was a party. It was a celebration. They would be gathered with their families. And so for us, just imagine like Christmas morning, right, where everything just kind of shuts down, not much going on, but everything is about being there with your family. And it would be a time that you would look forward to for months, maybe even since the last time you had Christmas last year. That's kind of what the Passover was like for families. Now, each of these disciples... They had families. A lot of them were married. I don't know if they had kids, but they had nuclear families. And at this time of Passover, they should have been with them, with their families. But instead, Jesus had the audacity to insist that they celebrate Passover with him. And so one thing we learn right out of the gate is that Jesus is establishing in this meal a new kind of family. That we are all, if we're in Christ, brothers and sisters. We're all, God becomes our father and we become sons and daughters. And so he continues and says to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. It's a word they eagerly desired. It's actually the translation and what is written is, with desire I have desired this. It's that, it's that Semitic doubling. It's to create that intensity of motion. And so our translation doesn't do very well. But in other places in Scripture, that desire, eagerly desired, is translated as lust. To give you some idea of what kind of desire Jesus has for this time. And so he's saying to his disciples, you have no idea how much this moment right now means to me. You have no idea the love I am feeling for you right now. How long I've waited for this moment. That ever since eternity passed... I have had this meal with you planned. I eagerly desire, verse 16, to tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. The Passover was supposed to be a meal that looked back to something that happened in the past, a time of remembering. But Jesus here is now changing the meal to not just look back, but to look forward to the future, a time when the kingdom of God will reign. Now, the disciples still have no idea when that will be, but they know it's coming, and they can feel the excitement. They're ready for the kingdom of God to come. Verse 17, it says, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
Now, this Passover meal that they're having, it, it's, got a, it's got a specific order and a specific script and a specific thing you eat and a specific thing, ways you do things. So you would bless the first cup of wine, which Jesus is doing here. And there's like five or six cups of wine that would come throughout this meal. And there was fresh bread brought in and there were herbs and there were greens and there would be a lamb that you would eat at this meal. And somewhere along the way, the youngest child, imagine Tiny Tim in the Christmas story, would be, you know, Father, why is tonight different than all other nights? And the father who was presiding over the Passover meal would answer the questions using Scripture. But Jesus has gone way off script with this Passover meal. He's with the wrong people. The order is botched up. It's supposed to be a meal to remember the past, but he's talking about the future, and it's about to get a whole lot more weird. Verse 19, it says, He took the bread gave thanks for it, and broke it. That's not too out of the ordinary. The bread was to represent the affliction and suffering of their people as they made their way from Egypt to the promised land. So he takes the bread of affliction and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Those words had never in the history of the world been spoken at any Passover meal. Jesus has just made the Passover about himself. Karen and I were talking last night in the car. We're like, you know, we have some sympathy for these disciples and really everybody that was around Jesus. You know, we have the privilege of being this side of the cross and we have the privilege of having gospels that were written to help us kind of understand what Jesus was doing throughout his ministry. But the amount of confusion, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, the amount of confusion that they dealt with, bless their hearts for sticking with this Jesus guy. Verse 20, it says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I don't know if you realize this or not, to an outsider, we Christians kind of have a morbid religion because the centrality of our faith revolves around the slaying of another human being whose blood is poured out not only poured out, but we're supposed to envision being washed and covered in his blood. I don't, that doesn't strike you as weird at all. But that I was watching this week. You know I grew up as a Mormon, and I was bored at nighttime, and I just went on Amazon Prime and Googled Mormon because I love watching Mormon documentaries and people talking about it and coming in and out of the church. It's funny. I discovered one. I'm like, I know those people, Lynn and Mike Wilder, who are members of this church but rarely here because their ministry is traveling around sharing their transition from Mormonism to Christianity. So they're not here very often, but they had been a part of a documentary. And I start watching it it's like a two and a half hour thing to help christians understand what mormons believe and i'm just it's been a while you know i've not been in a church for 20 years and i'm like wow i believe that stuff like these secret rituals they believe you have to do a secret handshake to get into heaven and have to have a password and you know i could never remember the password anyway and i'm like this is really some weird stuff that they believe how did i ever believe that but we christians we believe some weird stuff and some of it's just difficult. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Be generous to a fault. That's pretty weird. But what rational human being would sign up for a movement that the blood of the founder and the device that killed him is their logo? That's their central symbols. And I believe Jesus in this Last Supper knows that's a lot to take in. And to understand. And so instead of giving this lecture on propitiation of sins or theories about the theology of the substitutionary atonement, he decides to use a meal to illustrate what's about to happen. And it's just a simple meal. 
It's a piece of bread. It's a little bit of wine. And with this meal, he's going to tell the story of the Bible. It's a story that at its center is always the bloody death of an innocent lamb. And so I want to share that story with you a little bit tonight. That story begins back in Genesis where we humans chose to run from our creator, God, who created us in his image, and we decided to be our own gods. And you fast forward a little bit, you get to this guy Abraham, and he has a son named Isaac. And God over and over toward the Hebrews that because of their sinfulness, their choice to be their own gods, that the lives of their firstborn son was forfeited unless it was ransomed, unless a payment was made to ransom and save that son. Now, we don't understand a lot of what that means. That sounds bad enough. But in that culture, see, we Americans, we're very individualistic. It's all about us and our desires and what we want to accomplish. But in ancient culture, it was all about the family and what the family was going to accomplish, not your own personal desires. And so the firstborn child was the bearer of all the hope for the family. And so God says every person on earth owes a debt to eternal justice. And so God calls in Abraham's debt. He says, sacrifice your one and only son. And that's the son that the entire nations of Israel's hope lied upon. I told you, this is a difficult story. This is not a feel-good, friendly, happy story. What kind of God would ask a guy who is his follower to kill his own son? And what kind of Abraham, I mean, we should be calling DCF on Abraham for even considering this idea. But first of all, if you've read this story, it's important to note that Isaac does not die in the story. And so we can now see, and this is at least what I believe, that the story is a prophetic illustration that's meant to point us to something greater. Second thing that's important to note is God didn't introduce death into the equation. We did. And so God's got a problem. He's got to figure out how to deal with the debt of our sin that we created. And someone might say tonight, well, well, why the heck is there a debt in the first place? I mean, God could just, you know, wipe away that debt, right? He, he created us. He gave us his law. And his law is, you know, love me with all your heart. And we don't do very good at that. Law is love your neighbor as yourself. And well, we don't even come close to that. And so when we disobey God, when we hurt God, when we replace God, we create a debt between ourselves and God. But again, someone says, well, why can't God just forgive? I, I realize we screw up a lot, but why can't God just forgive us? He's God, so God just, just let it go. Let's unpack it a little bit. If somebody hurts you, I mean they really hurt you. A debt is created, and many of you have felt that debt when somebody has just really hurt you, and you're like, there's a debt you owe me. And so there's two options. Option one is we can make the offender pay. We can retaliate. We can exclude them. We can make them pay us back, even if it's possible. We can make them apologize over and over again. We can pay them back so we can get even on the debt. And we can do that until we feel like that debt is sufficiently paid. Meanwhile, while we're doing that, hate is growing inside of us which is doing nothing good for our lives. And so in the reality of that, there's now two people paying the debt. Option two, though, is yes, we can forgive the offender. And by the way, that's the right thing to do. It'll be better for you. It's better for everybody. But when you forgive somebody, that means you are paying their debt. And if you've ever, more than words, more than saying, I forgive them, when you've truly, when somebody has really hurt you, 
and you've truly forgiven them, you know the cost of forgiveness. That you can't forgive someone without suffering yourself, without letting go of resentment, and letting go of the anger, and letting go of the hate. All of that comes at a cost. Two options. I'll give you a kind of a third option A and B. Sociologically, let's think about that. If someone is guilty of a horrible crime, let's say it's rape, or let's say it's murder, and if we lock them up, they're paying their debt to society. If we let them off the hook, society is paying their debt. The victim's life is devalued. There'll be more crime because of a lack of consequences. Somebody is always paying the debt. All wrongs must be paid for by someone. That's complicated, I know, but if we can come to terms with that in our limited minds, how much more does that principle apply to a perfect and holy God and his perfect and holy justice? If we can't forgive someone without suffering, how can God forgive all of humanity without suffering? I mean, he's got two choices. He can take out his wrath upon us and we pay the debt, or he can forgive us and he pays the debt, but he is holy and perfect. And so how does a holy and perfect God suffer and pay the debt? And so with this story of Isaac, we get a glimpse of how a holy God may have a way to pay our debt. And the story ends with Isaac there on the altar. And poor little Isaac, he's like, Father, we have the wood, we have a knife, but where is the lamb? Because he knows a lamb sacrifice is supposed to pay that debt. And Abraham simply says, God will provide a lamb. And of course, you know the story at the last minute, God speaks, Abraham, don't do it. You have shown great faith. And magically, a little ram appears over in the thicket story ends. Let's fast forward that story in Exodus to the story of the Passover, the meal that the disciples and Jesus are celebrating this evening. And the story begins with Abraham's descendants, now many years later, are enslaved in Egypt. And God calls the Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, to release his people, to release them from poverty, to release them from slavery. And you know, Moses, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, nah, not going to do that. And the plagues come, and there's frogs, which my wife loves, and the boils, and the hail, and the locusts come. And then there's a grand finale. It's the most unstoppable plague in the history of the world, death. And God says, I fast forward in time for one day, and there's a divine moment of justice coming. Tonight, the angel of death will take the life of every firstborn son. But there's a way to stop it, the blood of a lamb. And so he tells the people, kill the lamb, consume the lamb, eat the lamb, and then cover your doorposts with its blood. And if you do this, death will pass over your home. Now, it's interesting. I've always read this, and I'm like, this is a plague upon the people of Egypt. But, but there is no respecter of persons with this plague. It didn't matter that the Jews were oppressed and the Egyptians were the oppressors. It didn't matter that the Jews went to synagogue. It didn't matter that they even worshiped the God of Israel. If they did not sit under the blood of the Lamb, their race, their pedigree, their religion, their beliefs, their good ethical behavior could not save them. Only faith in the substitute of the blood of the Lamb would allow God's divine judgment to pass over their home. And again, you know these stories are familiar. God's judgment passes through Egypt. 
The homes that are covered with blood of the lamb are spared, and all the other firstborn sons died. And one of those sons is Pharaoh, and he sees God's power, and he finally caves in, and he lets the people of Israel go. Of course, then he has a change of heart, and Moses has to part the Red Sea, and the people escape. They spend the next 40 years wandering around in the desert. If you ran into one of those Israelites running around in the desert, lost, be like, bro, what's your story here? What's happening? And they would respond, well, I was an alien in a foreign land. I was oppressed. I was a slave. But I took shelter under the blood of a lamb. I couldn't save myself, but I put my faith in God's promise, and I was made free. And now God is dwelling with us right here in our midst. And even though all I see is dry, barren desert, I know he's taken me to the promised land. And I hope that's really easy for you to fit that to modern-day Christianity. That brings us back to our story tonight. We've got Jesus. He's with his closest friends. He's having this beautiful Passover meal. Time to remember and celebrate the first Passover, the freedom of their people, the blood of the Lamb. And they've got the wine, they've got the bread, and they've got the herbs, and they've got the greens. But you know, in all of the Gospels, there is no mention of the Lamb being present in this meal. See, there's no need for a Lamb on the table, because the Lamb of God is at the table. And that Lamb is speaking good news to these disciples. He says, I have longed since eternity past to eat this meal with all of you. All of Scripture, everything you've ever read has pointed to this moment. This time, though, the Father is going to walk up to the mountain with His Son, and the wood's going to be laid upon Him, but God's not going to step in and say, stop. The bread of affliction, which reminds us of the suffering of our ancestors, now represents my body that's going to suffer. So you can have not just political freedom, but freedom from death. And this wine that we're drinking, it's, it's still a reminder of the blood of the Lamb, but I am the Lamb. I am the substitute. I am the payment for your debt. It's my blood that will cover your life and save your souls. Don't you see all the stories point to me? I'm the ultimate Moses. I'm the final exodus. The voice of the Lord spoke, let my people go. And as my blood pours out, they will be made free. There's a debt to be paid. Divine judgment is coming. And the only way to stop it is the blood of the lamb. And so tonight I make a covenant, an unbreakable promise to cover your sins in my blood, my death, and death will pass over your life forever. There's one final chapter in the story of the Lamb. We've got the Abraham chapter that a debt must be paid. We've got the Moses chapter that a substitute can pay our debt. We've got the Jesus chapter that says it's me that is that substitute. Go all the way to the end of the Bible, though, there's Revelation. And chapter 5 says this. It says, then, this is John speaking. He's having a vision. He says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. He's seeing this lamb and it's bleeding. But it was standing at the center of the throne. Something's dead is not standing at the center of the throne. He says, Then I heard every creature on heaven and earth singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To him be praise and glory and honor and power forever and ever. The Lamb was slain. His blood poured out, but he is not dead 
God made a way. So now death has no sting. Life has no end. John the Baptist, if you remember, when we started the study through the Gospel of Luke and he sees Jesus coming towards him, he says those words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That phrase doesn't mean, oh, hey, look, everybody, it's Jesus. He's coming. That word behold means take it in, reflect on it, realize what it means that Jesus is the Lamb. Realize the graps the depths that God will go to save you. Take it in. Behold it. Allow the blood of the Lamb to transform your life. If you really behold the Lamb of God, you will never feel more loved when you really behold that. And then when you feel that kind of love, I'm telling you, it'll transform you. Glory and achievement starts to take on new meanings. Serving others will overtake that ladder climbing you've been doing your whole life. You'll go to amazing lengths, as Scott talked about last week, searching for that one lost sheep. You'll stop at nothing. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, you'll stop searching for specks in everybody else's eye, and you'll recognize the giant plank sticking out of your own eye, knowing that there is no such thing as good people and bad people. There's only bad people and sinners who either get justice or bad people who are sinners who are covered in the blood of the Lamb. You'll begin to see suffering in a whole new light, knowing that the most senseless act of suffering in the history of the world worked out for the most possible good. And so I want to end tonight as we lead in prelude to Easter. I just want to take a moment to behold the Lamb of God. And so I'm going to ask some servers to pass out the emblems tonight. I just want to say, if, if you see food on a table, right, and you're like, man, filet mignon, that looks good, and garlic mashed potatoes, I sure love those, and chocolate lava cake, I believe in that steak. I have faith in that cake. There's no nutritional value for believing in it. There's no nutritional value for praising it. That food must be consumed. It must be taken inside our bodies, not just once, but continually over and over and over. We would never say, man, I had an amazing meal back in 1994. Wearing that flannel shirt, listening to Smells Like Teen Spirit, so good I haven't eaten anything since then. We're supposed to consume a meal over and over. We need the continued sustenance. We need the daily nourishment. I just want to say Jesus has eagerly desired this moment with each of us here tonight, too. It's been marked on his calendar since eternity past. And so I just want to take a moment together, if everybody's got the emblems, to behold the Lamb of God together as a family. And I'm just going to use Jesus' words. He says, after giving thanks for the bread, he broke it. He gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you you may now eat the bread. And then Jesus, taking the cup, he said, take this, divide it amongst yourselves. We've taken care of that for you. He says, this is the new covenant. This is the new promise in my blood, which is poured out to save you. Drink the juice. And as you do, why don't you go ahead and stand? Just want to tonight sing one last song together. 
And it's a song of just beholding Jesus, of thanking Jesus for his blood, of leading us now into the time of Easter. Father God, we thank you for this evening here together. We thank you for your blood that saves us. God, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you've bestowed upon our lives, that we've done nothing to earn or deserve that blood over our doorpost, but yet you gave it to us freely. So God, we thank you. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.